0: Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 235, The Russian Elite After the Revolution, Part 2. Last time, we covered the Russian elites that made it out of the country after the revolution and the Russian Civil War. Today, we will look at what happened to those who did not make it out or chose to stay in the new Soviet Union. My primary source of information for this episode is Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy by Douglas Smith. One of the most critical comments that Smith makes is on the information about what happened to the nobility. While on a visit to Moscow in the spring of 2006, I searched the many drawers of the card catalog devoted to the Great October Revolution at the Russian State Library, the former Lenin library, not fully online at the time, but could not find anything on the nobility. Surprised, I asked a librarian why there was nothing in the catalog. The look she gave me was of disbelief, as if I asked her who was buried in the Lenin mausoleum. Что? What? She stuttered. The revolution and the nobility? Of course not. Because the revolution had nothing to do with the nobility, she instructed this clueless American historian. While researching this book, I've received similarly dismissive comments from people in the West. Of course the nobility was destroyed, I've been told, and rightly so. There's a belief among some people that the nobility got what was coming to them. So we need not be surprised or even care. Both points of view that the revolution had nothing to do with the nobility, or that it did but need not concern us, are wrong historically and morally. This part of Smith's prologue is why I'm doing this two-part series. We all need to know what happened and care about why it happened. In Smith's book, he follows a number of people who were of noble origin, two families in particular, get the majority of the attention. The Golitsyns and the Sheremetevs. The former was a Moscow family whose heritage goes back to the Lithuanian Grand Princes of the 14th century. They were the largest of all the noble families. Their first service to a Russian ruler was under Vasily I, the son of Dmitry Donskoy, in the 15th century. The Sheremetevs were tied closely to St. Petersburg. We first hear of this family during the reign of Ivan the Terrible. Yelena Sheremeteva was the daughter of the boyar Ivan Vasiljevich Sheremetev. She was the third wife of Ivan IV's son, also known as Ivan. Because the Tsar felt she was immodestly dressed, he struck her while she was pregnant, causing a miscarriage. When her husband screamed at his father, quote, You sent my first wife to a convent for no reason. You do the same with my second, and now you strike the third, causing the death of the son she holds in her womb. Ivan the Terrible then struck his son with his staff, killing him. Before the revolution, the Sheremetevs were among the wealthiest and most influential families. The Golitsyns were the most prolific, having four different bloodlines each with many members. One of the last to serve the Tsar was Nikolai Golitsyn, who was the Prime Minister of Russia from January 20th to March 12th, 1917. He would be the last Prime Minister serving under a Tsar. Golitsyn would be arrested by the provisional government and severely beaten, tortured, starved, and imprisoned for a few days. While he would be released, he would be rearrested in April. When the Bolsheviks took control, they allowed him and his family to leave Russia as he was an old man. But for some reason, when we really don't understand, he decided to stay. Between 1920 and 1924, Nikolai was brutally beaten and arrested twice by the OGPU on suspicion of a connection with the counter-revolutionaries. After his third arrest on February 12, 1925, he would be executed on July 2nd in Leningrad on a charge of participating in a, quote, counter-revolutionary monarchist organization, unquote. This would be a common outcome for those who decided to stay. History tends to repeat itself, as you've been told many times. The fate of those who remained in Russia after the revolution was very similar to the fate of the same class during the French Revolution, more than a century before. as Smith points out, quote, at the height of the terror, chateaus were ransacked and plundered, thousands of nobles were imprisoned and killed, and hundreds lost their heads to the guillotine in Paris. Nobles who fled the country were branded traitors and enemies, their property was confiscated, and in extreme cases, their family members were taken hostage. He further points out, And following a strange dynamic that would be repeated in Russia, as the revolution progressed and the counter-revolutionary threat retreated, the perceived danger the nobles represented and the repression measures against them increased. When the revolution did not develop as its leaders had promised, they pointed to the nobles as the reason, as would happen in Russia too. Attacking the old elite became an easy way to gain popularity and prove one's commitment to the cause and to the people. I see Vladimir Putin using the Ukrainians as his scapegoat to explain his government's failures and providing a better life for the Russian people of today. In the early post days post-revolution, one of the leaders of the Cheka who would persecute many of the nobles who remained in Russia would be... Jacobs Peters, also known as Jacob Peters. He, along with Felix Drzezinski, would execute hundreds of nobles and those in the privileged class. In a significant piece of irony, Peters, during the Great Purge, as part of the so-called Latvian operation, would be arrested and executed by the NKVD on April twenty fifth, 1938. What we know about the terror unleashed against the Russian nobility, we know that it was way more violent than the French Revolution. The French nobility suffered about a 9% casualty rate. The Russian nobility that remained suffered a death rate far higher, although we will never know the exact number. What we do know is that the numbers are in the tens of thousands, while in France, it was around 1,100. When we look at the fate of the Golitsyns versus the Sheremetevs today, there are still relatives of the Golitsyns alive in Russia. This cannot be said of the Sheremetevs. They were utterly annihilated. One of the ways that many nobles who remained stayed alive was to change their names and never speak of their former lives. The children of those nobles were never told of their parents' past, primarily to protect them. Yelena Shuvalov, who was born in 1930 to a formerly noble family, said, quote, We did not take any interest in the past. It just wasn't done. It wasn't a consideration. I remember from my early childhood, when I'd ask something, I was told, and it always amazed me. The less you know, the better. I hear this either from my uncle or from mama or papa. I was grade school age. In the end of the 1930s, and that's the way it was back then, no one said anything. So, with all the terror that was to befall the nobility, why did so many stay? It's an obvious question. Well, the main reason was they believed that there was no way that the Bolsheviks had any chance of staying in power for more than a few weeks. Some decided that the Bolshevik power was most significant in cities like Moscow, and Siberia, in rather St. Petersburg, but they agreed it would be safer to head to Siberia or maybe Crimea. Some, though, were bound by a sense of duty to remain in Moscow or the capital. Count Sergei Sheremetev, former mayor of Moscow, would say to his family that it was wrong to leave, quote, to flee a sinking ship and that they all simply had to die on their native soil. Sergei would forbid any family member to leave or even talk about the thought of leaving. Another reason was the rumors that kept floating around that the anti-Bolshevik campaigns were somehow gaining success. Some of the talk was that there were actual monarchists among the Bolsheviks that would save them and subvert the revolution. Also, there were rumors that the Germans would be in St. Petersburg soon and would revive the monarchy in order to return in return for a promise to remove Russia from the war. The overwhelming belief among the majority of those who stayed was that the Bolsheviks were an uneducated riffraff who would collapse under their lack of education and lack of strength of numbers. This delusion was part of their problem. They didn't believe that anyone cared about their riches, their abuse of the people, their excesses, their arrogance. An event that would seal the deal against any hope that the Bolsheviks would be defeated occurred on March 3rd, 1918. That was when Russia signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. It took Russia out of World War I, which was something that the majority of the Russian people wanted. This was especially true of the Russian army, which had been suffering horrendous losses of life. Many of the military leaders, with a deep belief in the monarchy, Switch sides to help the Bolsheviks take control during the Russian Civil War. The nobility had always supported Russia in their battle with Germany. They felt that it was their duty to side with the Tsar in any decision he made. This was quite apparent to the military, especially the soldiers. They would be some of the destroyers of the nobility. Terror, especially using violence, was a key position of the Bolsheviks. Lenin believed that while the French Revolution did a fair job of calling out those who subjugated the people, it didn't go far enough. As he was quoted as writing, quote, The guillotine only frightened, it broke only active resistance. This is not enough for us. If we are guilty of anything, then it is of being too humane, too kind in regard to the monstrous, traitorous representatives of the bourgeois imperialistic order. He further went on to say, quote, These enemies must be placed under special monitoring by the entire populace. They must be dealt with in the most merciless fashion for the slightest infringement of the rules and laws of the so- socialistic society. Then, on October 5th, 1918, a law was passed that anyone of the bourgeoisie was to work in manual labor. Part of this labor was to dig graves for those who died of a typhus outbreak in St. Petersburg. Much of the work was to humiliate the nobility, performing work that had really no public benefit. During the early days of the Bolshevik takeover, which was accelerated after the end of the Russian Civil War, there was the most significant appropriation of private wealth in world history. It has been estimated that over 1.6 billion rubles were taken from the people which is the equivalent of $160 billion in today's money. 75% of all land privately owned by individuals was put into the state's hands by 1918. Many of the homes owned by the nobility were turned into government housing or offices of the newly entrenched Bolshevik hierarchy. Whereas many of them had mansions with numerous rooms, they would be forced to live in one room within a house, Subject to being spied on by other families in the house. Many of the nobility had hidden much of their wealth in safety deposit boxes and banks scattered around Russia. In 1918, they were ordered to appear in front of Cheka officers with the keys to the boxes to have them inspected. Whatever they had of value was confiscated immediately. Women who went to the banks were horrified when everything in the safety deposit boxes was taken. As one would prophetically say, What's the use of crying? This is only the beginning. Wait and see what will happen to us, all of us, soon. Then we can cry. One of the revelations I made while researching for this episode is why the Bolsheviks were successful in taking control of the country when they did. They should have never had the resources to buy the weaponry or pay the people to help them develop their strong army. The way they got it was due to the reaction of the nobility to the start of World War I in 1914. They decided to sell off many of their assets in Europe, especially in Germany and France, and return them to Russia for safekeeping. That represented an enormous amount of assets that the Bolsheviks had access to when they nationalized the banks in 1918. Another manner in which the Bolsheviks would gain wealth for their cause was to kidnap members of the nobility and hold them for ransom. The Soviet secret police once took 105 primarily elite residents hostage and demanded 22 million rubles for their release. Lenin endorsed these actions, but this did make him enemies of former friends. One was the anarchist writer Peter Kropotkin, who condemned the policy of kidnapping quote, describing it as a return to the Dark Ages. One of the unintended side effects of this policy was that bands of criminals cropped up as Bolsheviks who would kidnap people for ransom. The government had no way of controlling this behavior. This led Lenin to order those found to illegally appropriate nobles' monies to line their own pockets shot on sight. As Smith puts it in his book, quote, A joke from 1918 captures the topsy-turvy of nature of life in this new world. Question, who is the proletariat? Answer, an ex-bourgeois. Question, and who is the bourgeois? Answer, the ex-proletariat. The former Russian nobility's abuse began to settle in mid-1918 until about August 30th. On that day, the head of the Petrograd Cheka, Moisey Yuritsky was assassinated by a 22-year-old military cadet, Leonid Kanegaiser. On the same day, Vladimir Lenin was shot and seriously wounded by Fanny Kaplan in Moscow. These two events led to what we now call the Red Terror. On September 1st, the Red newspaper printed the following, quote, We will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Let them be thousands. Let them drown in their own blood. For the blood of Lenin and Yuritsky. let there be floods of blood of the bourgeois. More blood as much as possible. Pravda published the following, quote, The counter-revolution, this vicious mad dog, must be destroyed once and for all. Not only were the two assassins almost immediately executed, Thousands of former Tsarist officials and nobles were executed, even without a trial. In Petrograd, 512 were killed on Lenin's orders, and 400 in Kronstadt. It spread throughout the areas that the Bolsheviks controlled. Historian W. Bruce London, writing about the Red Terror, said, Never had a modern society killed its people so readily. Douglas Smith wrote, to the Bolsheviks, believers in Marx's notion that the death of the bourgeoisie was a historical inevitability, doing away with the ruling class was simply an act of euthanasia. Families like those of Prince Vladimir Obolensky were killed in 1918, many beaten to death on their families' estates. Others would find themselves arrested during Stalin's purges, dying in prisons or gulags. It was in 1918 that Lenin proposed the idea of creating concentration camps. The official degree was, quote, it is essential to safeguard the Soviet Republic from its class enemies by isolating them in concentration camps. In 1919, many of the nobility in the now Soviet Union were forced into labor camps. Overcrowding became a problem, one whose solution was to simply... Execute anyone who was of high standing or who couldn't work. No reason was ever given. From 1918 until 1921, the Russian Civil War raged throughout the countryside. Former Tsarist army members had to decide, join the Bolshevik Red Army or take up with the scattered Whites. 48,000 chose the Reds, with twice as many joining the Whites. Prince Vasily Golitsyn had one son on the general staff of the Red Army and one fighting for the white. This was not uncommon. Trotsky, one of the Red Army leaders, was wary of many of the officers' loyalties, so he proposed that their family members be taken hostage. The white army would sometimes do just the same. After the war, during the Great Purge of 1936-38, Many of those who served in the Red Army and were former Tsarist officers would be executed after show trials. Of all the trials and tribulations that the former nobility had to deal with, the one that became the focus of their daily lives, though, was the acquisition of food. Starvation due to the Civil War was rampant. They would do anything, sell anything, and work at any job just to feed their families. This is one of the reasons so many tried to get out of Russia. The more ominous one would become apparent during the end of 1920. Red Army General Mikhail Frunz was near Crimea when he suggested that those who couldn't get on a boat surrender. He even offered them generous terms. But, of course, it was all a lie over 50,000 people were shot to death in those last weeks of 1920 almost all of them were members of the former privileged classes the next group to suffer at the hands of the bolsheviks were the officers who surrendered to the red army when offered a general amnesty again a lie in ekaterinburg 2800 were executed in ekaterinador 3000 were executed Worst of all, for those who surrendered in Crimea, as I said, some 50,000 were murdered. No one was safe. Not women, children, or the elderly. In one case, that of 84-year-old Princess Nadezhda Bariatinsky, her daughter and son-in-law were shot, along with her, in December 1920. After the Civil War came to a conclusion only 12% of the nobility were still alive in the soviet union those who stayed lived a horrible life as anglo-american reporter walter duranti wrote quote most pitiable is the lot of those aristocrats male or female who were devoid of any qualifications of practical value one sees them stand patiently for hours in the open-air markets holding coats furs small pieces of silver or last scraps of jewelry for sale, of which they can eke out existence for a few weeks longer. The new economic policy, known as the NEP, was given a chance to the younger ones to open restaurants, hat stores, etc., but the position of the older ones is hopeless. However pathetic may be the sight of fortune's favorites, fallen from their high estate, there is no escape from the law of the Russian hive. The drones must die. After Lenin passed away in 1924, Stalin would slowly begin to take control. As much as Lenin disliked and downright hated the privileged classes, Stalin despised them even more. By 1935, a purge of the remaining former people began, especially in the newly renamed Leningrad. One of the reasons things were starting to heat up against the former nobility was the assassination of Sergei Kirov in 1934. Stalin was likely behind the plot, so he needed scapegoats. While the Great Purge is remembered mainly for getting rid of old Bolsheviks, they were not the majority of those executed. Ordinary citizens were being accused of being spies, traitors, or even counter-revolutionaries. In addition, many former nobles who were left alive were now targets of this new repression. Charges against these former people bordered on the absolute absurd. Alexander Golitsyn was accused of, quote, working on the stage of the Tomsk City Theater, where he acted the roles of heroes in a perverse light and ideologically distorted inner content of heroes' roles. And that's the official charge. For this, he, Piotr, and Olga Golitsyn were executed. In 1938, many in the Trubetskoy family were also arrested and executed. Some were teenagers. After the Great Purge, it was thought that things would finally ease up on the nobility. Well, the few that were left. That would last until 1940, one year before the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Then, a new series of arrests began, numbering over 3 million. This would continue through the war as the Soviet government believed that anyone with a noble heritage was a German sympathizer. During these purges, the remaining members of the sheremetev family would be wiped out. By the beginning of 1941, there were 2.5 million prisoners in the labor camps and prisons throughout the Soviet Union. When the Nazis invaded on June 22nd, it was up to 4 million. Today, many Russians... that. Fear that all they had built up financially could be taken away from them, just as was done to the former nobles of Tsarist Russia. History tells us what might happen in the future. Let's hope it doesn't repeat itself now, but from what the reports we're seeing of some of these oligarchs who were mysteriously dying, one of whom uh, supposedly fell from his sixth floor uh, hospital window accidentally, according to the government, uh, it's happening again, it seems. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we cover the life of one of the Russia's greatest literary figures, Russia's poet Anna Akhmatova. So until next time, Vevidnya mm-hmm. is possible Bolshoya.